Well, good morning, everyone. So I got some good news and some good news. So good news is Pastor Mark is back from vacation. More good news is I'm preaching instead of him this morning. Um, the reason behind it is, yeah, clapping is great. Um, the reason behind that, though, is not as good. He actually uh, has COVID, and so he got that on Friday and kind of hit him really hard. And so he tapped me on the shoulder, and here I am today. So, But he wants you to know that he's not on death's door. He's, he's recovering well. He's feeling much better today, and he hopes to be back in office this week and back up here on Sunday to kick off our first Thessalonians series. But until then, I'm here to preach this morning. And so I have a message for us. Um, it's going to be based out of Luke 6. And so I hope that this is a, an encouragement to you this morning. I want to start with a quick question. How many people have driven here this morning? Well, look, I'm going to guess at least half of you, and maybe a little bit more, have driven here this morning. Uh, or if you're online with us here today, maybe you took the exact same path to the spot on your couch this morning. I assume that's probably what happened. But I know I drove here, and it was not difficult to get here. I know that it was something I was able to do without much concentration, without any GPS help. I know it was something I was able to do while listening to the radio. I know that it was something I could do with what seemed like little to no effort on my part. Sound pretty familiar probably for most of you who drove here this morning. Some of you may have even not even remembered the drive here. Have you ever experienced that where you've driven to work and you get there and you're like, I don't remember taking that turn, but I know I took that turn because I'm here now. Now, whether it's driving to church or driving home from work, it's likely taking not a whole lot of effort for you to get here. Another scenario could be that outside forces, something you can't control, made the drive today a little bit more difficult. Thankfully, the weather's been pretty good, so there's no ice on the roads, but somebody could have been driving erratic in front of you. Someone could have been driving too slow for your liking in front of you. Weather conditions could have got worse at some point, possibly along your drive. Perhaps it was your vehicle itself that was the issue and you needed to rely on someone else to get it going. Maybe even, and I know for some of the young families here, this is not a common occurrence, but maybe your children weren't angels this morning on their way in and made the drive a little more difficult. Whether the drive here today was simple or your morning looked easy enough online, there were probably times when you were able to kind of check out and almost go into autopilot and give yourself the ability to think about what's coming next. Either if that was getting here, making sure you get here early enough to get good coffee, making sure you get here early enough to get your regular spot, if you are one of those people, perhaps that was you. You would be able to accomplish regular tasks, core tasks, with little to no effort. But that wasn't always the case in this situation. Anyone from the younger crowd here learning to drive? Or even the older crowd? Trying to learn how to drive again? No? Yeah, a lot of laughs, which means that's probably a yes, but nobody was confident enough to put their hand up. So, I remember learning how to drive. Every lesson for me was exhausting in this time. My hands would get sweaty. I, like, I'm terrified my hands are going to slip on the steering wheel. I'd feel anxious. I'd need to psych myself up to get out of the vehicle for the lesson. Now, I didn't drive myself to the lesson at this point, so there was no worries there about hazard on the road. My mind would race, and the only thing I'd be able to focus on would be driving. Now, I was so conscious of not making a mistake and causing an accident that 
people around me could kind of drive however they wanted, and I, it wouldn't set me off like maybe it would today. They could basically do what they wanted. Does it sound familiar to anyone as you were learning how to drive as well? So why the difference between driving here today and when you learned? Why is there such a big gap between learning how to drive and the utter focus it takes and requires to later driving in multiple different speed zones through multiple different types of intersections, doing multiple different types of turns, merging lanes on and off of the highway, and not even really needing to think about these things? Why such a difference? Well, today we're going to look at a parable that Jesus told to the disciples and surrounding crowd. It lands at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and any time you're teaching anything, your conclusion should have what you want the audience to walk away remembering in it. So, let's actually look at the passage now that we're going to read today. It's found in Luke 6, so if you want to flip there in your Bibles, feel free to do that. If not, it should be on the screen behind me or in front of you. As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. They are like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck the house but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. The Sermon on the Mount is a section of Jesus' teaching that was causing the audience to be perplexed. Now, to get to the why of why the crowd was perplexed, we need to look at some of what, how Jesus had been teaching throughout the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus, up to this parable, was speaking with phrases like, you have heard it said to those of old, but I say to you. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. It was also said, but I say to you. All throughout the teachings on the Sermon on the Mount, it seems like Jesus is constantly rewriting the law for the people. That makes sense because Jesus came to fulfill the law, and the Gospel of Matthew actually reveals that to us. And yet Matthew also reveals that nothing will pass from the law until heaven and earth pass away. This is why the audience was perplexed throughout the whole thing. Nothing will be taken away from the law, and yet the Sermon on the Mount, he's proclaiming, you've heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard it said to those of old, but I say to you. It was also said, but I say to you. And all these teachings that are seemingly changing the law kind of cause confusion. So picture being part of the crowd, sitting there thinking you're a good Jewish person so far. No anger, no adultery, you haven't murdered anyone, you've fed the poor, you've clothed the poor, you haven't created enemies, you feel like you don't have any, no divorce in your life, all was looking pretty good. Then you cue Jesus' entrance. He now says that that second look is like committing adultery. Thinking about cutting off that guy that cut you off on the way to church today is just as bad as actually doing it. But you're safe. You still don't actually have enemies, right? You wouldn't actually harm anyone. Well, what about that player you aggressively slide-tackled in soccer after they outplayed you 
for the ball on the previous play. That type of anger and action is as good as murder in Jesus' eyes and his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Can you begin to sense what the crowd may have been feeling as Jesus was teaching on the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew 7, verse 28, actually records how they felt at the end of that sermon. It says this. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. They were not only perplexed, like in Luke 6, but they are described as amazed in Matthew's recording of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, a word that is used in the ESV is actually the word that I think gets us closer to how the crowd was actually feeling, which is astonished. They were an astonished audience. And here, it is in the passive form in the Greek text. The word is actually ekpleso. It's my best version of Greek. This matters because if you were to translate it, you would find out that it is a compound word with ek, which equals out, as a simple translation, and then pleso, which is strike. So if it's in the active form in the text in this situation, it would be translated to mean to blow out, to cast out, to drive out, something very powerful in that sense. But in the passive, it is correctly translated as astonished. Or maybe a common turn of phrase for us today to kind of wrap our mind around the concept of astonished is mind-blown. Right? Can we picture the emoji that has the dude with his head blowing up kind of deal? Like That's kind of how the audience is feeling right now. Thus, this reaction is leaving the audience with a permanent jaw drop posture. Astonished. They, were able to, they weren't able to accept that teaching of Jesus throughout those chapters immediately. It was confusing, perplexed, astonished. And that is part of the problem. They were astonished because of the fact that Jesus was teaching with authority that even the religious leaders of the time did not teach with. But the biggest issue is that Jesus was making claims that were founded on his own power, which was unlike any of those that came before him. The likes of Moses, Elijah, Isaiah, Zechariah, any of the Old Testament prophets always declared teachings with a caveat. This is what the word of the Lord says. They prefaced it as this was the word of the Lord. And then they taught. But Jesus was making statements like this. I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. This is found just before the astonished word in Matthew 7. There was no need to filter the message anymore. It was coming straight from the source, from God. So the Sermon on the Mount is concluded with the parable we read at the beginning of the message today. And it was the take-home for an audience that was left completely astonished. This sense of awe in the authority with which Jesus was teaching was coupled with a sense of hesitation toward fully accepting that teaching as well. We may possibly feel like that when we read the Sermon on the Mount sometimes, thinking, Was Jesus actually serious? Could he have actually meant what he was saying? So let's reread Luke 6 here and get back into the mindset of that parable. I'm going to start in verse 46 this time, which you may have caught in the original reading. It was intentional. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, 
and do not do what I say. As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. They are like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. Verse 46 is the take home here. It's the verse that's often forgotten though when we think about this parable. We remember the two foundations, the two builders, but not the question that leads to it. Verse 46 is the point of the parable. It's the take home for the Sermon on the Mount. It's the thing they want you to remember. This idea of truly living out the concept of Jesus' lordship in our lives is key for us here today as well. So what's the definition of Lord? It's someone or something that has power, authority, or influence a master or a ruler. This definition gives us some insight into what the people are actually saying when they proclaim him as Lord, Lord. They confessed him as someone having power. Jesus is like a king with power. He had authority. With authority comes the ability to direct them as well. So they were saying they wanted him to direct them. They were also stating that they wanted Jesus to influence them change how they see things, cause his views to influence their views. But up to this point in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been teaching all kinds of things that require self-examination, that lead to action, but none of that is actually happening in the lives of those around him, which is why he teaches in the way that he does. Jesus has not only fulfilled the law, but he has ramped it up to be a law of the heart, The crowds are not understanding it. They are living in astonishment. And yet they still say with their lips, Lord, Lord. Do you think they actually reflected on what they were proclaiming when they were saying this? Do we sometimes forget to reflect on what we are proclaiming in that moment as well? This is not a small point or simply something that is neat, a fact to point out about the text that I'm trying to come back to over and over. The confession of Lord, Lord is the greatest confession that could have been made or that we can ever make in our own lives. And yet followers, and perhaps us here today, do it half-heartedly at moments. Jesus sees through their words and knows their hearts. If they truly meant that Jesus was Lord, their hearts and their lives would have begun to look like his. But that's not the case here. And that's why Jesus uses the parable of the two builders, a parable about foundations. Builders would typically dig down in that time until they had bedrock and start their foundation from there. In the dry season though, it would feel as hard as rock up on the top of the ground. So some would take the shortcut and just build the house right then and there. And as we read when the storms came, the house would be wiped away, it would not hold. The crowd would not have needed this parable explained. To them, it was common knowledge. It was so obvious that no one could mistake what he was saying for something other than a direct challenge to those who talked the talk, proclaiming him as Lord, Lord, but didn't walk 
the walk. But yet they still proclaimed him as Lord, Lord. Jesus needs them to do more than simply hear his teachings. That's only step one to the foundation, and there needs to be more than that. Step one, hearing Jesus, it's simple enough. Just be close enough to him to audibly hear the words. Step two is to listen to Jesus' teaching. You can hear something and not listen to something. I can hear Jacqueline when she's telling me about something, and then she can say, are you listening to me? And I can follow that up well, with, yeah, of course I'm listening to you. Why wouldn't I be? My full attention is on you as I scroll to the next post or something. Then uh, she says, what did I say then? I'm hooped. I don't, I don't really know. Because although I heard her making noise and saying words in the background, I registered it. I wasn't listening to her, right? I did step one. I was physically close enough to hear the audible sounds, but I wasn't connected to her. I wasn't seeking her. The same needs to be done for listening to Jesus. We need to be connected to him through undivided attention to his teachings. And we need to be seeking him actively, looking for ways to engage him in what he has for our lives. Then step three, after hearing and listening, is action. To actually begin to form that foundation and build the house. We can't just hear, be within earshot of his teaching. We can't just simply listen and understand them either. We need to act on what we've heard and listened to. We need to do what he tells us to do so that when we call him Lord, Lord, we can do what he says. Now, this parable is about building and the Sermon on the Mount is about the law and this stuff can kind of seem pretty far and distanced from our context today. So let me share some of my own story here and how this parable played out in my life pretty obviously to me. And maybe we can have something revealed to us in our own life through this that we can examine and begin to act on in this coming week. So for those of you who may not know, maybe you all know this. I know a lot of the youth group kids have heard this story before. So don't check out though, all right? Like this isn't like when I taught at youth. Still stay engaged, okay? I grew up in a small town and lived next door to my grandparents. Two doors down was my aunt and uncle in this small town. There were even more family than that. So I was pretty surrounded, comfortable, living in a good context. We attended church growing up, but the Bible wasn't really a central part of our household during that time. Sports were the center of my life. And because it was a small town, sports were kind of the center of its life. So when it came time for sports to happen on the weekends, church got pushed to the wayside. Now, growing up, I was also a fairly popular kid. Identity of a class clown, which went negative towards a bully. And so, even though I wasn't that confident of a person, which is probably commonly understood for how bullies get to where they are. I remember making fun of others on my basketball team when they weren't within earshot, so that I would look like the better one and they would look like the lesser person. I made fun of people to help me gain in popularity. For a kid in the first year of high school, I had kind of perfected my craft and was at the top of my game, you could say. Up until then, it was pretty clear sailing for me. Then my brother started to attend church with one of his friends. He was 
in the crowd that if he was the same age as me, I probably would have bullied. And there were two families that always seemed to ask our family at basketball events to come on out to church. So one year, my parents decided it was time, since my brother was attending, that we all went to church. I was livid. I did not want to be there. These were the people that were like the lowest of low in my eyes. Every single Sunday was a fight with my parents. Their drives to church weren't quite as mindless as mine was today. But over time, I accepted Jesus as my Savior. And it was because I was more and more surrounded, and my parents didn't give in with people that imitated Christ and exuded him. But then a storm hit, and my amazing house, my clear sailing position of popular, athletic, class clown, was starting to erode. My family entered a financial struggle, and I remember that I wasn't able to play sports because of this. So that was athletics gone. It's all right, house can still stand. Then I began to change my actions like I should, because I was now a Christian, and my class clown identity started to be eroded and stripped away. So now my house was beginning to fall apart, but I was still okay because I still had my popularity. But in a small town without sports and without being the class clown. Yeah, I lost all those friends. I was not popular anymore. My house had been hit by a storm, and now I realized that I was the foolish builder in that context. Built a house without a foundation. From that point of decision to accept Christ, though, I had been beginning to dig down to find that solid ground and started laying a foundation in a different spot so that when I lost that house, I would have something greater. Now, I was not perfect through these years, but I was still striving my, to do my best for God. I was reading, albeit sparingly, the Bible. I was attending youth group and church regularly without a fuss. I got baptized. I was actually growing new friendships with the exact same kids I once bullied. God used them to shape me and allow me to see my sin in those actions and actually ask for forgiveness and reconcile with them. Continuing on, university happened, I get married, we move to Edmonton for schooling. All along the way, I was continuing to dig down and build up that solid foundation in my relationship with Christ. I had gone to school for some biblical training already. I was still serving in the church. I was attending regularly, all of these things. I was reading my Bible, praying. I was even on the elders board at my church before I moved out here, if you could think. But we came out here and I was immediately in a storm again. I was homesick, no supportive family anymore, that my grandmother wasn't next door, my uncle wasn't down the street. All, I couldn't look around and find somebody I knew. No friends, I was living in a big city. But I'm a small town boy, this doesn't make any sense. I step outside and I feel lost, which is like not something I'd ever had to comprehend in my life up until this point. And on top of all that, we had no internet for two weeks. I didn't have cable, I didn't have TV, I had nothing to do with my time. Like, what am I going to do, read a book? Like, all right. So, but I did get a job right away. That then pushed me further into the storm, and I was sent up north for three weeks, so then I removed my wife from the situation. I was alone, even though I was surrounded by people. Then the biggest gust of wind that has ever hit my house hits me full blast. While up north, while completely alone, 
I get a call from my pastor in New Brunswick, and my brother had died the night before. This was October 13th, and so now I've lost the brother, the only brother I had, and I'm all alone. Through the next while, though, I worked with God and others on this loss, and he graciously helped me through my grief-stricken heart with purpose. My calling into ministry was solidified in this moment like nothing ever before in my life. I had an internal battle with God since undergrad all the way until that point on my calling. It took God stripping my life, shaking my house to bring me back to him and him alone in a way that I needed to be brought back the way I was called to be. I was like those crowds. I was proclaiming him as Lord, Lord, doing everything and looking right. But I wasn't doing what he said. I started seminary that January. My foundation was built in such a way that I was able to withstand the storm. I heard Jesus by being near enough to him. I listened to his teachings and understood them as best as I could, and I put them into action. The withstanding that I did in my second storm did not come without a cost, with some damage to the house. There were still things that needed to be fixed in my life and healed, and we need to be aware of that as well. This parable and proclaiming Jesus as Lord does not preclude us from struggles in our lives or hard times, but we do have the assurance that Jesus will be there with us if we are those wise builders that hear, listen, and act in those storms. Now, my arguably smaller first storm completely destroyed what I had built up to that point in my life. The bigger, worse storm, I was able to withstand and heal through it. And if we think back to our introduction about driving, we're eventually able to drive with relative ease because of the foundation of hearing, listening, and acting listening to instructors, we have gained experience, we've practiced to the point where we are daily driving from places to places of significance in our lives with relative ease. We have a foundation built that is strong there. So then, what can we all do to be those who confess Jesus as Lord, Lord, and act on it? To be able to navigate back to that confession regularly with ease and act it out in such a way that it is not exhausting and we are able to adapt on the fly because we're like those wise builders who have the strong foundation. The answer is not earth shattering. It's nothing new to us, but I want to encourage us with two categories that we can try to focus in on. First are the areas of regular personal time with God. This is regular time digging into the word, reading of the Bible, Regular time praying in conversation with him. Taking times of silence so that we can actually hear him. Withdrawing for times of solitude to just be you and him. And practicing a Sabbath, reorientating our week and our life and our work to be able to set aside that time that is already made holy by God for us. These and many other spiritual disciplines are ways that we can continue to build that strong foundation, that firm foundation in a personal way with God. The second one is regular communal time with God. 
This one's often not emphasized enough. We're doing it right now as we're gathered as church here together, communal time with God. But you can do all of the things I've already listed communally, and they should be done in that way. God himself embodies community in the Trinity. We read the Bible together, whether as a couple, a family, or with friends. You can pray as a group. We have a monthly prayer night here at West Meadows that we encourage you to become a part of. You can also get involved in other groups, whether here we use terms like serve group, connect group, and teaching group. And I want to even remind you of a tangible way that we're actually providing right now, our upcoming foundations teaching group. I encourage you to be able to get to the core of your faith in that class. If you can make that part of your week, please join us for seven weeks as we answer seven key questions. Or perhaps it's joining a life group here, a small group, where you could actually do the last thing of practicing Sabbath together. These are all ways to build upon that solid foundation. And these are all ways to call Jesus Lord, Lord, and actually do what he says. Now knowing that when we actually confess Jesus as Lord, we must also continue in his good work. Let me leave you with these words from Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. So that we can proclaim him as Lord, Lord, and do what he says. It says this, therefore, since you call him Lord, Lord, therefore, my brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Because you know, you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Amen.